Welcome to another episode of Ready Teacher One. I'm Adam Mangana. And I'm Ryan McLaughlin. And man, oh man, do we have a treat for you today. We are interviewing the one and only Dr. Derek Cam. Uh, he is the department head and associate professor of art and design at NC State. More than that, he's one of our heroes in VR and education. Uh, we've wanted to chat with you, Dr. Ham, for a long time. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's, it's just truly a, a pleasure and an honor. Man, it's great to be here, talk with you guys. I appreciate you being VR evangelists and technology evangelists and sharing this content with the world, with our community, with so many different people. So glad to be here. Well, you're too kind. Uh, we, we do enjoy evangelizing the VR technology, but um, this is such a tremendous episode for us because for one thing, this is our 40th episode and lots of folks say that, you know, most podcasts don't make it to 40 episodes. So this is a kind of a, a big deal for us. But to have you in particular as our guest on the 40th episode is special because you, sir, are largely responsible for the existence of this podcast. So I'll set the, a scene for you here. Adam and I were roommates together at Vanderbilt doing our master's degrees together uh, in education. There was a, a day during our first uh, class together where Adam said to the class, I really think that virtual reality is going to change education very, very soon. And I think that most people in the room looked at him like he had three heads. I kind of turned to him and I was like, okay, interesting. I want to hear more about that. A little while later, of course, you know, Adam brought his Oculus Rift to campus. And the first thing that he put us in was, I am a man, which, you know, goosebumps, chills, tears, you take the headset off and you realize that, uh, that I am a man represents a, a seawater change for education. And uh, I would love to just start off by asking you to tell us the story of how you came up with the idea for I am a man, maybe explain to our listeners that haven't gone through that experience, uh, what some of the goals and contexts are of that, uh, that app and just flesh out for us what I am a man has been able to accomplish. Um, well, you know, one of the things I say it's important for anyone um, to understand who's never tried VR on, I always say the metaphor is it would be like me trying to explain television or film to you if you only know radio. Right. And so all you're going to do is you're going to try to piece together what, what I'm telling you it's doing, but you won't have a reference until you see it. Like until you see a motion picture on the screen, you're like, oh, is it like a shadows? Is it like theater is it like you like know this thing on moving picture so immersive storytelling and its true nature is one of those things where it's such a dimensional leap to the other predecessors of media that you just have to try it to fully understand it and you have to try a good version you can't put on a google cardboard and say well i tried vr it's like no right. like that's like saying i've seen film and you watched a small black and white television i'm like let's sit in this imax theater or surround sound you're like yeah. this is this is completely different two different things here so vr does come in a lot of different forms um but high-end vr and that's one of the things i've always tried to do is really try to push technically along with the storytelling um to give a, a deep immersive experience so you know when i when i think about what i was thinking through and i'm a man um this is at a time when 
the rift was still oculus was still early it was it hadn't even been fully released um it was i i my first headset was the first cv1 you know i had one of the, those first kits and so i was playing around with the idea of, of spatial storytelling well beyond we had the touch inputs and it, and, it, and that really was the thing for me that was that pushed my storytelling further. Like when I first started thinking, it was like, man, I've done some historical projects before. Let's go to some African-American rich storytelling. Oh, Lorraine Motel. I was, just, I was just bouncing on several ideas. But simultaneously with me prototyping some of my ideas, Oculus released their touch controllers. And this is like very early on. And it was like, wait, wait, wait a second. You know, before the touch controllers, I had put a leap motion on my headset and done some hand tracking. I knew like, oh, that's really cool. Hey, you know, janky wires everywhere. But now with like an official two controllers that I could map skins to it, that's when I like completely, I just like fell out. I was like, man, it's not just about transporting someone there. I could put you in the hands of a black person. And that's a com completely different genre of storytelling. I would say the immersive nature of using hands even more than 360 film. You know, there are a lot of great VR projects out there that, that are trying to deal with civil rights or deal with race. You know, one of my favorite projects is Traveling While Black. I think that's a really strong project, but I explain to people, well, Traveling While Black, you're still a ghost-like character. So if I was white and Traveling While Black, I can still maintain my whiteness and go through the experience and not be challenged about the thinking through the lens of someone else. You go through a piece like I'm a Man, you go through a piece like um, The Thousand Cut Journey, you go through pieces that kind of change you and change your, your DNA if you're not Black and you become a Black man. I'm like, wrestle with this. What is it like to be Black in America in 1968? You can't escape this. Look at your hands. I'm telling you who you are in this storyline. And that, for me... Um, that was my aha moment to this day. I'm still wondering, like, why aren't there more people doing this? You know, I thought this would be, I thought I was going to be on a wave. And I was like, oh, you would see people do this with the elderly. You people see people do this with gender and being a woman or being this. And I'm like, it's still one of the most under, um, looked methods of storytelling is kind of like switched identity, body identity, um, in a radical way. You know what I'm saying? I do. You no, know, you play play Vader Immortal. Yes, I have gloves and I'm a new character. Um, you play several applications and, and you're there, but it's radical when I'm like, your blackness and the storytelling and who you are is a big part of it. And that's that's what I I I hope to achieve in that project. That's tremendous. You know, one of the things that Adam always says is that, you know, VR is the greatest empathy machine that we've ever come up with as humanity, right? And I think that so much of your work really highlights that potential and that power. And um, it's true though, that there are very few other people that have attempted that kind of, uh, that, that embodied consciousness, shall we say, or that embodied storytelling that you're talking about. Um, you know, I can think of the example in, uh, I believe it's Barcelona where they've used this with uh, domestic abusers to put them into the shoes of their victims, right? I, I think that's University of Barcelona that has done that work. Um, other than that though, I, I mean, are there other folks out there who have attempted the kind of 
empathy machine utilization that you've been able to accomplish or are, are there other people's work out there that you admire on that front? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the piece I, I just kind of briefly mentioned, A Thousand Cut Journey by Courtney Cogburn. And um, I think she did that in collaboration with Jeremy Bayliss lab over at Stanford. I, that, that was a great project that kind of puts you in the perspective of being a young black kid in K-12 environment, facing all the micro um, aggressions and facing a lot of those things. And you're from that perspective, you, you see yourself. Um, and, but, but overall, it's, it's very thin. It's a very thin line for those who are trying, trying to do that. And there's a lot of good reasons why. It's like, at the end of the day, is that the most profitable experience right now? <laughs> sure. I mean, VR is, is time consuming. It's, it's a very expensive process to, to make content. And so people, unfortunately, you have to sometimes make hard decisions on um, the funding, looking for how this thing is going to be created, thinking about the audience and, and, the, and the time invested for it. It's always what I jokingly say to my developer friends who are fully in industry is that you, I say, well, that's why I'm in academia because at the end of the day, <laughs> um, I still get that base paycheck. And so, um, and it's part of research for me. And so my, I can build the content and, and lean back on that with those other things. But at the same time, you know, there are moments where I'm having a busy week and I can only, that week, I only had four hours to dedicate to the feature development. And so that's the stuff that sometimes, that's the chick, that's the like chicken and egg or uh, the two sides of the coin rather. It's like, yeah, you have all this other stuff, but it slows up your development pipeline. Ideally, I want to get to a point where, and I'm grooming some of my graduate students in their technical abilities uh, to get to a point where they can like carry the mantle and I can start telling part of the story and I can work with bigger teams and we can tell bigger stories and, and do bigger projects. Um, everything takes time, but I, I also think what's helping is um, the, the, the accessibility of making these tools is the bar is dropping lower and lower. Um, I love that Epic Games released the, the MetaHumans. I can't wait. I cannot wait to see MetaHuman projects being appropriated for historical characters and being dropped in, you know, I, I can't wait for the time where the 14 months that it takes to do an I'm a man can be done in three months. Like, I, I'm like, I'm waiting for that. And I, and I think it's only a matter of time with, oh, with packages right. and tool sets. And I mean, there are some who don't have that perspective. They like, oh, I have the rigor, it took me this long and I'm protecting it. I'm like, no, I'm, I want a point where a ninth grade high school teacher can use a summer with some tools that they can click and snap together and make their own content. Like I, that's my vision of the future. This is so powerful because this is uh, something that we're at the point of the spear on right now with this podcast. We're, you know, part of our mission in this podcast, Ready Teacher One, is to uh, provide the framework for accessibility to this technology that so many people see as out of touch. And so as you think about that, you know, I'm, I'm curious, one of the pieces in, in your answer was the subtext around the human capital problem. You know, I have to work with graduate students to get them technically ready. Um, you know, how do we begin to solve the, the human capital problem? Um, and that's part of why VR is expensive. Um, what are the things that, if you could wave a magic wand, what do, you think, what do you think the three things are that would make 
the creation of I am a man happen in three months instead of 14 months? Well, I mean, part of it is um, libraries and assets. You know, when, when you look at um, some of the, 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 the big libraries and where people are now scanning objects and making them accessible, we need to really push for more um, open source 3D models. We need people in museums and, and libraries to scan their artifacts, make them accessible for educators and people to make content with them. That cuts down in modeling time. Um, I know Epic Games is doing a great job in making big parts of their library, if not free, cheaper to, to get assets to do things like that. That's a big one. Um, the animation pipeline, I'm seeing this happen in real time, how it's becoming cheaper and inexpensive, where you have built-in pipelines where you can pull an iPhone up and completely animate a facial capture for your, your digital avatar. Um, that's why I do see a future very quickly where a teacher can assign to the students, we're learning this part in history, you all rebuild this part here, and here's your tool set. Can you imagine the upswing of the kids, just like what I do in my work? Oh, let's research the character, let's research the story, let's research this, and then use the computer to bring these characters to lives and act out these stories. What we're seeing that happen in real time, we're seeing the technology to puppeteer an avatar, to bring them to life, to do voiceover stuff, all being consolidated in quicker tool sets that are being built. And I, I like the fact that a lot of these are being um, created to be made open source or being made accessible to them. So it's only a matter of time before CGI content um, takes the same trajectory that film did. The history of film, expensive, big equipment, all this. You look where it is now. My eight-year-old can take several <laughs> videos and use an on-the-phone editing thing to put together a little, a little yeah, film. A million people on TikTok can see it within 90 seconds, right? So you're, so, you're absolutely right. I, I'm, yeah. I'm curious because this is exciting. Um, you know, one of the biggest problems facing the education space now is that all of these analog assets, as you described, are not digitized. Um, what do you think, what do you think the prospects are of next fall, a school opening completely in VR and trying to conduct social VR, not in the same way you do a nine to five school, but like you said, the empathy machine speeds up the learning process. So maybe we could do a three hour a day school and 30 minute sessions. What, what do you think the prospects of a completely VR school, what would you say would be the upside? What would be the, the cautionary tale? What would you want to see around corners on behalf of this school around? What would stop us from building the alternative to Zoom school right now? You know, I, I think we're still a little bit off with the technology being able to accommodate that. And, and some of the reasons that, that personally is, um, I think the cracking the nut of what it means to have body presence and human representation in digital spaces will be critical so that we don't lose touch with our humanity. And this is what I mean. Um, studies are showing that kids are having a hard time making eye contact and having real face-to-face -face human conversations, like having a horrible time being able to do that. And I think at the end of the day, Zoom didn't help it because Zoom puts us in video contact, but like 
eye contact, right? Let's talk about human eye contact. Like you're dancing all over the screen. You're like you're looking at yourself. You're looking at all this, all these other things. But then I'm like, you know, for me to make eye contact with you, I have to look through this camera, like right now, like perfectly looking at you. And that's not the same as me looking at your eyes, right? So this is a very strange thing to say. And when I'm looking at your eyes, you're not locked into my eyes. Right. So that becomes strange for students to be like, I'm locked into your eyes, you're locked into my eyes, and we're having a human conversation. We are now seeing headsets, though, that can do eye tracking and body tracking and avatar likeness. So for me, I don't, I don't really want us to shift over to some of the fully CGI characters, and they're spatial, and they're there. I think that can mask a little bit of that social awkwardness. But when we get to a VR context that's tracking my eyes and I can zoom in with you, you can zoom in with me. Wait a second. We have something better than zoom now because now we can achieve the classic human. Let's look each other in the eye. Let's have a conversation. The common Let's read our body language, facial expressions. <laughs> Ryan knows I like to say the common courtesy <laughs> connection. Well, look, this that's is right. an idea, right? Because your 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 work is primarily in the very high end. Uh, you, you talk about Unreal Engine and, and just the visual fidelity there. Um, you know, you, it's just too high of a polygon count to take to the mobile space, right? You you can't operate some of these uh, experiences untethered when we think about like a social VR school where we want to network to each other using like uh, you know an application like Engage or something like that. Um, the future is in streaming, though. You know everything that you're talking about running would be done remotely. And mm -hmm. so when we get to that point when our, our, you know, 4G, 5G, 6G, like these Gs keep popping up, eventually we'll hit that curve where all you have to do is be logged in. And so the headset itself doesn't need the full chip, doesn't need the full processing power. It's being connected from a server running everything at high speed and just beaming it there almost instantaneously. Like we assume right now we can't do these things because we're our assumption is everything is computed in the headset. And the headset is just like a receiver of a screen and doing some tracking. That's that's a game changer. Well that's really wow. exciting because that gets to my point. The, the alternative to Zoom school is inevitable. Yeah. And so those who are building content for that now will be able to skate to where the puck is going to be. So well, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I mean, so what the I mean, headset will be your own, bring your own device. You know, we'll still meet in person. We'll still do those things. But when it's time to go cover content, they'll just simply put it on, you know, or, or the rooms will be outfitted themselves. That's a whole other conversation, Adam, about headset free immersive experiences there's a real strong push right now For towards let's sure. revisit holograms let's revisit um spatial sound in a classroom let's revisit these things and and so but the future is an emergence of digital content with the physical world that that is a fact for right. sure, right. for right. sure. Right. Dr. Ham, I'd love to switch gears here a little bit and just ask you a little bit more about your own origin story here. Uh, we know that you did a lot of your academic work in architecture. Um, you started off at Hampton University for undergrad, Harvard for your master's degree, and then you switched gears to design computation at MIT for your doctoral work. 
I would love to hear, you know, about your own background a little bit uh, and your own interests and how you were drawn to the work in VR in the first place. Well, you know, something that I'm always proud of that sometimes gets overlooked is when I was a PhD student, this is years, you know, had two degrees in architecture, I had taught in that space, had practiced a little bit. Um, it was in my second year of my PhD program where my advisor told me, oh, this semester, I want you to go over to Harvard and take some courses. And I was like, yeah, I have a degree from the Graduate School of Design over there. I'm not going back. Like, that's not why I'm here. And he's like, oh, no, no, I'm not talking about design, the ed school. I was like, what? Like, what? Um, I took two courses at the ed school and that changed my whole outlook of education. And it's funny, and I know I'm talking to a bunch of educators in this space, but you do have to realize a lot of college professors have never taken a pause to ask, what does it mean for someone to learn? Yeah. What does it mean for someone to learn your subject matter? And I was being hit in one semester with things that every educator knows about. They know about learning theories. They know about moments in history. They know about Piaget and Vygotsky and all this stuff. And so that one semester then turned into me reaching out to one of my professors, uh, a course in group learning, who extended an offer for me to be a TA. And for three years, I was a TA at Harvard's Ed School for a course on group learning. And that's one of those things that never pops up. And I'm just like, my experience being saturated in an ed school at Harvard Ed School was tremendous on my outlook because I asked new questions. There were questions I was now asking about um, how do people learn? How do people process information? Um, all these new questions that from architecture in my background, I was usually being led by asking aesthetic questions. Um, formal questions, questions about the form, the nature of it. Um, what does it look like and feel like? And even from my time in MIT, the technical achievements of it, like how should it work and function? And it was the ed school that really opened me up to start thinking from a user experience, what are, you know, what are their learning outcomes? What are they getting out of this? How do I measure that? I mean, those, were, those are the things that changed the trajectory of my work to hold myself more accountable for the types of things I, I should be doing. And then I, I also add, I, li I like to communicate to, to people, I do have my own childhood background that I draw on. So I'm a product of a retired K-12 teacher. So this is education yeah. side. And my father has been a minister his whole life and worked in communities. And so his, his passion for um, the, the poor, his passion for um, outreach and reaching out to people, I, I that was my household, those two things, the, the pastor's kid who's working in the community, the teacher's kid who's stressing education. And so I look at my own value system, things I find really important. I see an overlay of those kinds of, um, that exposure to, in my, my childhood to where I am today. That's a, that's a fascinating insight into your work. And I would love to hear you comment a little bit more about the education theory side of your background. You know, uh, one of the things that Adam and I talk about often is that we've known for a very long time what it is that students need from their education experience, right? We can go back a hundred years and we can look at the work of Dewey, the work of Montessori, the work of Francis Parker. You mentioned Piaget and Vygotsky. 
we can look at all of this work that's been done over the last hundred years and, and we've known that students need experiential learning. We've known that constructivism is the way to go. We know that um, students do better in these types of environments. The problem, of course, has been one of democratization of that experience, right? Democratization of that style of education. Uh, we know that you know Dewey languished in it, it, very expensive private schools in Chicago, right? We know that uh, it's incredibly difficult to scale the Montessori model. I'm wondering from your perspective, if you could comment on the ability of VR to finally take these pedagogies and democratize them, finally take them to the masses. And, and I'm wondering whether you think that we've still got a ways to go on that or have we arrived where VR is ready to, to fill that promise? Well, you know, let me go back to some of that, the educational theory, you know, there is another one in there that I like to lean on and it's constructionism. I mean, we heard about construction, uh, constructivism, but the constructionism, which is coined by Seymour Papert. And I was exposed to this um, by a course I took on, under um, Mitch Resnick, who created Scratch at the MIT Media sure. Lab. And constructionism is this idea, I boil it down to how do we, it's about making, the physical making. So while we have a past talking about learning through experience and learning that approach, this is a whole other thing by we learn by making, constructing things. And Seymour Papert's work that opened up this idea of the computer and he created this thing called the, the turtle. It was one of the first things, first people to get kids to learn to program and to make things. And so I've been heavily influenced about kids as makers versus kids as consumers. You know, I'm a parent of 11 year old, eight year old and six year old. And so I always look and review what they're doing on a weekly basis and make sure that there is a balance between things that they make versus things that they just consume. So flash forward to VR, like where do we stand? Are kids ready to also be a constructionist minded or are they just gonna be in the consumer side or constructivist, like experiential? So that goes back to my desire for these software kits and tools to be made simpler for kids to make content. Because as soon as we get them from, I've experienced the story of the civil rights to the, I constructed a story about the civil rights, that's just another deeper level of learning for them. And so we're not there yet fully to reach the fidelity of a piece like I'm a man, but there's so many great entry level tools for them to use. Um, in my lab, my PhD student who's, who's just um, finished graduating, we had built something called Paniform some years ago, which was just a, a, a simple um, methodology and tool online for kids to sketch on a panoramic image that was um, done in a way where you can just upload it and then you get to get a 360 photo. But that took on like wildfire of teachers because it was free, it was low tech. And all these kids, these teachers started like, oh, I'm using Panaform in my classroom to just to talk about things underneath the ocean. I'm using Panaform for this. And kids were loving the fact that they were just, even though it was hand-drawn low fidelity, they were authoring their own 360 panoramic and then putting on Google Cardboards for them to look at. And so what, we, what I think VR's in-game, yes, we will see a day when high-fidelity content can be brought down and kids can make that concept themselves. No, we are, we are far from there. But I think it's important for the teachers to look at their curriculum when they bring in projects to say, what activities am I doing? And maybe you use some of these lower tech tools 
Um, another one that I've used in a workshop with kids is Play Canvas. It's an online tool where you can create games and other small things. It's completely WebGL, WebVR. And you can make some interesting, small experimental content with them. And so you bounce those experiences out until we reach that, that, that breaking point when, yes, the high-end stuff becomes accessible to the youngest of kids. Derek, let me ask you this. You, you mentioned group learning. And, um, you know, juxtapose for us your thoughts on social VR versus the single-player piece and the importance of social VR, particularly for online learning, you know, where we don't have a brick and mortar school where we can meet and we want to build community and we want to build, as you said, you know, the common courtesy of connection, eye tracking, et cetera, et cetera. Talk to me about social VR versus the, the, the standalone on rails type of experience. I haven't yet seen an example of social VR for learning yet, where it has the same type of agency and excitement that social experiences for play gives. I mean, that opens up that whole other dynamic of education theory about ludonism, learning through play versus other forms of learning. And I think if we are to get to a point where VR is adapted to our learning environments, we have to first understand, well, how do people play in VR? And how do kids play? Um, I've, I've had my share of good and bad experiences in social VR um, with, with alt space, with um, rec room. I, I've spent significant time in there really just to kind of analyze and study as, as I like a participant myself and just kind of reflect what's the future. And what I found when I compare, and I use these as an example when I talk to my students about the difference between early days of alt space VR and early days of rec room, with alt space VR, there was no guided activity. You're just in there with a whole bunch of people and everyone has to make up their own rules. And it's like, well, what do we do? We could do this, we could do that, we could talk, we could bad map that kid over there, we could tell jokes. It's like, it's a weird, strange world. Versus you look at rec room, right? Same mechanics, a whole bunch of avatars walking around. It's very intentional. We're gonna play paintball. It's very intentional. We're going to go on this quest over here. And there's something about for younger audiences, giving them the, the agency to do a lot of things, but framing it for them. Okay, but this is the activity. And any good educator knows if you don't do a framing and scaffolding approach for what you want your kids to do, you're going to get a wild west of experiences. And so I haven't yet seen this modeled for an educational um, application that's, that's social VR. I think we can learn from that. It's about scaffolding, it's about being intentional, and then within that bucket, you give them the freedom. But if have, you're just like, hey, going to alt space, and you all talk about this chapter, Have you spent any time in immersive education's Engage application? So it's an Irish company, immersive. immersive? No, I haven't. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so we, we think that we, Ryan and I believe that we may have stumbled upon this exact answer. And uh, at some point, I'm going to see if I can jump in with you and show you some of the things that we're building in Engage because we I would love we, to see it. We think we may have stumbled upon this. I would love to see this it. This exact answer. It's actually perfect that you frame that out. So I'm excited. So let's, let's play this game. If you, if you could engineer that, and you could wave a magic wand and that particular tool existed, 
do you then think we could have a viable uh, alternative to the Florida virtual schools of the world and the virtual instruction providers? Um, I, I'm, I still don't personally stand by the replacement of traditional meeting to traditional schools. I, I'm just a fan of the enhancement. That's always just been my model. And so I think these as, as an enhancement tool, absolutely bring this in, allow that to enhance the learning experience, to enhance the classroom experience. Um, as a parent, I, don't, I wouldn't want my kid to be plugged in eight hours on a headset, no matter how great the experience is. I still want them outside of the headset doing the physical day-to-day -day activities. Um, that's just <laughs> my desire to keep us rooted in to this dimension of reality, you know, dimensions of reality, physical reality, spiritual reality, digital realities. I want them tuned into the physical, not to lose that. So I always see it kind of like an enhancement tech and not as a replacement tech. Um, that being said, we're just we're just not there yet. And I couldn't, I can't look into a crystal ball and predict when <laughs> everything will be cheaper and everything will come out. And I mean, look how long the iPad took to really get adapted. There are still schools who are doing their first order of tablets. So we, we have some time to get there, but I do think we're gonna get there where that bring your own device or the devices that sit in the classroom, the VR headset will just be as common as any of the others. And then the software support for all those things, software that's about experiential, the software for about creation and making. Um, Who do you think is doing the best online learning in the world right now? Khan Academy. Okay. Um, I, I do. And theirs uh, is, is asynchronous. They don't have uh, synchronous. You're right, you're right. But their model for engagement, passive, playing, learning, rewards, they, they really have a good package. Um, Tremendous. Dr. Ham, one of the things that we like to discuss on this podcast is sort of the confluence of immersive technologies along with things like blockchain and artificial intelligence and some of the other uh, hot button emerging technologies that folks like to discuss. I'm wondering, what do you see as being the uh, the overlap between those things going forward over the next few years? Scary exciting. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I, I really do think scary exciting. And, and I think there are some use cases of AI um, to create virtual environments that we're on the eve of. And like I say, for me, it's scary exciting. Um, right now, there are systems that can build photorealistic humans on their own. That's scary exciting. Like, right. it's like, it's giving birth to children, if you think about it. It's just like, all right, I'm making these children, I'm putting these features together, and I'm creating them. Like, whoa. Um, to put those into virtual environments where the, the AI versions of the avatars and the world that you're inhabiting, not only are they, were they not created by a designer, which we traditionally think of, who is making responsibility of what every character looks like. That's just like, it's algorithmically driven. And then if you think about their behaviors mapped on those things being algorithmically driven, we are truly talking about digital populations that have been created on their own. Scary, exciting. Yeah. Um, 
I think about the work that I do. There's a scene in um, my Negro League, Negro League baseball project that's talking about the crowds of people that gather to see some of these players play. And I have a good sizable crowd, but I'm like, I still authored every avatar. I created a system that had the features and then it did some diversity of height and some other things and outfits, but I still had my hand. We're talking about systems where it's like, no, you, you put on the headset, you're going to see likenesses virtually looking real of just people that were just created out of thin air, out of the system. And so that's crazy exciting. You think about wanting to, to do mass scale projects like that. But then on the back end, this idea of, and this is where I think it's really great potentially for learning systems that are truly smart enough to engage with the learner and push them when they need to be pushed and dial it back when they're being pushed too hard to always find that responsive sweet place. Um, I mean, that's in general games in general, we try to do that. Oh, the game's getting harder. If I'm getting bored. Oh, and if I'm too hard, it's dialing back for me. When we put that in an educational VR content, man, that that's tremendous, truly mapping themselves against each learner and, and, and adapting to them. That's, that's exciting. Incredibly exciting. You mentioned uh, the work that you're doing on the Negro League Baseball Project. Um, would love to hear more about that and other exciting things that you have on the docket coming up. Yeah, you know, Negro League Baseball Project and in partnership with the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City. Um, if, if anyone's ever in that area, it is a must-to place to attend that museum. I mean, the stories of these athletes, when you, when you hear them and you listen to them, um, Anytime you're watching modern day sports, you have to acknowledge that they, these athletes today, no matter who big they are, the biggest names in any game, basketball or football, still stand on the shoulders of people who are playing sports when they were segregated. But it's interesting to see some of the same manners and characteristics and things that they were doing then, how they carry on. Elements of showmanship, elements of putting on a show versus putting on an athletic performance. Like they were doing this and inventing that um, well before the, the, the things that we see on the TV today. So if anyone thinks a, 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 um, a celebration on the end zone is a spectacular, you should read up on the things umpires did in the Negro League just to entertain the crowd. So in itself, it's a, it's a very exciting subject. But then similar to when I did I'm a Man, I said, well, everyone knows Dr. King, but do we know the peripheral story? Do we know the I'm a man march? Do we know the struggle for the sanitation workers? And the answer was no. And so you go to Negro League Baseball and you're like, Jackie Robinson. And it's like, yeah, everyone's household name. And like, people, if, you, if I asked, I was like, well, who was the second person to, to, to get into the majors? And they're like, no, everyone doesn't know the name Larry Doby. And everyone doesn't know for the fact that Larry Doby entered into the majors only a month after Jackie Robinson. And it's like, what? So why did the history get boiled down to a single player and a single person? And then on top of that, Jackie played for the Kansas City Monarchs. And so you start peeling back and you're like, why is the one person who integrated the one history bullet, and yet we don't have all these great narratives about players, about what the league was like, um, about the, the financials, that these are black owners. And then there's the part of the, the story that, I'm, that I probably won't be able to cover in this first VR project, but we'll see how it goes. It may expand to a broader range of, of, of almost like a series. Um, it, it's sobering to note that 
when the Negro Leagues, when the Major League Baseball integrated, it gutted not only the Negro League Baseball, but it had these economic ramifications. So now you, these black owners were losing their best players and people who would go to their games are now going to the major games. And unfortunately, it gutted a whole economic system that was around Negro League Baseball that we don't even talk about. And so it's like, ah, double-edged sword here. You want them to go to the majors, but man, was there another way it could have, like if I was teaching in the course, I would have a major question. It's like, could there have been another way that baseball could have been integrated that could have preserved the ownership and the economic power that the black community had during the time the league was in full swing? Like those are interesting questions that require you to have a different lens of understanding history and what was going on. So my, my desire for my VR project is not to work in isolation, not to be like, oh, this is a one and done history lesson. Put this on, you'll know everything about the Negro Leagues. Far from it. The history is too deep. My goal is for you to experience it and you to be like, there's some, there's some history here. Um, let, me, let me pull up a book about Josh Gibson. Let me go find out more about uh, Larry Doley. Let me go find Satchel out. Page. So, Satchel Satchel. Satchel Page, yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> tremendous. Uh, Dr. Ham, we know your time's limited. We're so thankful for you coming on the podcast and chatting with us for a while. We like to end the show with a segment that we call the Furious Five. And this is just going to be five fun kind of get to know you questions to, uh, to end the show on kind of a lighter note. Um, so we encourage rapid fire, you know, one or two sentence answers. First thing that comes to your mind, uh, you know, it, gut level reactions to these questions. Question number one, what's the best meal that you've eaten recently? Ah, a lobster roll was uh, in Boston over the summer. Neptune Oyster, I think was the name of the restaurant. A good old fashioned Boston lobster roll. Oh my goodness. You are, all three of us have spent significant parts of our lives in Boston. Uh, You know, academically oriented folks tended up there for a little while anyways. And uh, man, now that you've mentioned that, I am craving a lobster roll (laughs) really badly. I'm starting to feel really hungry now. Tremendous. Second question of the Furious Five. Uh, what's the best movie or TV show that you've watched recently? Oh, um, I, I recently uh, got a subscription to, to, to CBS or uh, Paramount Plus, I call it, and I'm diving into Star Trek Discovery, and um, I, I'm, I'm hooked. Um, I, I, I love Star Trek and uh, Star Wars, but right now I'm trekking it hard, man, and that, that series is getting me. <laughs> Uh, that's awesome. We'll have to have you back on sometime to talk a little bit more about sci-fi. We're, uh, we're all sci-fi fans here as well, I think. Question number three of the Furious Five. Who is a thought leader uh, that our listeners should stop what they're doing and immediately go either follow on social media or watch a TED Talk by or read a book by? Who's a thought leader that needs to be uh, at the center of our attention right now? Um, it's going to be a weird answer to this. That's okay. Ray Bradbury is a okay. fiction author. From and back in the day, in yeah. one of his books, he wrote, um, the, the small chapter is called Will, Way Up in the Middle of the Air or Will in the Middle of the Air. Oh, gosh. He deals with racism at that time using science fiction in one of the most powerful short stories um, that's in The Invisible Man. 
uh, Ray Bradbury's thoughts about sci-fi and in the, the pictures that he paints as a novelist. When, you, when you're listening to Elon Musk racing off to Mars and you listen to these things, Ray Bradbury's fiction is coming to reality. Even topics of VR. I'm reading Ray Bradbury and I'm like, he's dealing, it's VR, it's immersive technology, it's racism, it's racing to the it's space racing, it's Ray Bradbury. <laughs> That's fascinating because, you know, we've had other folks on who have pointed to sci-fi authors, but the answer that generally comes up is Neil Stevenson on this. Mm. Um, and so that's absolutely fascinating to hear you uh, offer a very different answer. I, I would not have thought of Ray Bradbury. Um, that's super fascinating. And, and by the way, that's that short story. It's from the book, The Martian Chronicles, way in the middle of the air. It will, you read that short story from 1950 and you'll say, okay, this, this, this is above, this is well beyond its time. Wow. Wow. Question number four of the Furious Five. Uh, what's your favorite video game ever? Ever? Ever. <laughs> Woo! It, it, wow. That's a, that, that's, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, but I'm going to go with my gut here. Say Super Mario Brothers 3. I knew it. Classic. I knew it. I didn't say it. Classic. I knew I knew that you were on that Super Mario Brothers 3. I, when I had that raccoon suit, That's my right. eyes went like, what is <laughs> happening? <laughs> so the follow-up question to that is, did you use the cheat to skip all the way to World 8, or did you play all the way through? I, I played through. Nice. I played through. Nice. I grinded. And that's why I, me I remember just grinding. I'll be totally honest with you. I don't think I ever made it all the way through. I think every time I beat the game, I used that cheat, you know, that's in the world one to skip all the way to world eight. But uh, anyways, the last question of the Furious Five, we like to call the contrarian question. And this is really Adam's question. So at this point of the show, I always turn the mic back over to him. So Adam, take us away. Absolutely. Derek, what do you know to be true about how virtual reality is built and developed that other developers that are doing it in the private sector would disagree with you on one more time for me what do you know to be true about how vr is developed that other developers or builders of vr would disagree with you on from my point of view i don't know if they would disagree with me or agree but i'm going to say the, the, the window of creativity is being narrowed by the second for the wrong reasons. Maybe, I, maybe that's the part that's the controversial, the wrong reasons. Mm. When VR came out, even from Oculus, we're saying we don't know what to do. We want everything. Be creative. Show us things we haven't seen. Make projects we haven't seen. And in real time, it's becoming shooter music, shooter, music, it's, it's narrowing its creativity, sword, shooter, and, and it's like, and one end, I think the bulk of people are saying, this is good because it's becoming profitable and we need triple A titles and there's all that. And I'm the one that says, this is the wrong direction. Like screw the triple A titles, screw the, 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 the high fidelity. This baby needs to grow in innovation. And once you see one or two projects that look the same, 
we need to abandon the third, fourth, and fifth of the same thing. We need to let it. And is it going to, are we going to have some duds along the way and some, we yes. So that is from what my point of view is like, I think it's the wrong move for the industry to, for the sake of broader adoption, for the sake of this, let's just do another slasher, another shooter, another thing. And I'm like, no, we understand we want broad audiences, but let's keep going weird, strange, wild, different storytelling, all of the above. So I think that's kind of my soapbox. Tremendous, tremendous answer. There has Amen. to be a little bit of an extension there because I do think this is, this gets at more of the controversy. Do you think there is a killer app for VR? Aside from I am a man. <laughs> There's a formula for a killer app. But there isn't a killer app. Okay. And the, and the formula is forget that you're playing game. Wow. If you make your, if you make the user forget that they're playing a game or in VR, that is the formula. And you have to, you market to say, when do people become conscious and are, or do they ever forget at all? Even keeping up with people who are constantly users of VR, you have to then do more. That is the formula. That's the, that's the killer app. Because remember when VR first came out, all it took was a big whale to walk past you. And you were like, oh, it was, you lost yourself. But now we're quickly, like we're accustomed to it. So you have to quickly keep doing the pace of your storytelling, what you ask the people to do, the music, everything. You have to do it at a rate that you're like, wait a second, I'm in my living room. <laughs> For you, you have to trick you and pull you in till you forget that you're playing the game. What That's the formula. What an absolutely incredible answer. Uh, Dr. Derek Ham, what a privilege it's been to chat with you this afternoon. Where can our listeners find you on social media if they want to follow you, get in contact with you, learn more about your projects, all that good stuff? Oh, man. I don't, I don't have these rattled off on my head. I That's think okay. I'm Derek.A. Oh, gosh. What am I on Twitter? Uh, <laughs> you can see how, how I don't do this much time. Um, that shows you how old I am. I, I don't rattle these things off. That Google quickly. search him. <laughs> That's it. Just. But anyway, I will say this. Um, I'm the department head at the College of Design at NC State. So you can look me up at NC State's College of Design. Um, I'm also the chair of the Immersive Pavilion for Seagraph for 2022. That's slated to be in Vancouver. So that's an exciting opportunity to see how I get the opportunity to curate some of the best VR projects um, globally um, for the Seagraph community. Um, but you can follow me on NC State's website and from there click on and get access to all of me. So that's wonderful. Uh, Dr. Ham, thank you, Ham, so thank you again. I think we both forgot that we were learning today. I think that's we right. forgot that we were playing today. And uh, you have been an incredible guest and we look forward to uh, continuing the conversation. Absolutely. They say don't meet your heroes, but we just did and it was uh, an incredible experience for us. So we appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you.